Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello! So, as, as much as I'd love to sit here exchanging pleasantries, we've got lots to get through and lots to tell you about this week. So, the first thing is more live shows. Yes. Uh, so, coming up uh, towards the end of this month, we are going to be at the Back Underbe- of the Underbelly, June the 23rd, Sunday, June the 23rd in the afternoon. Uh, and this, we, we had this idea that it'd be quite good sort of once a month to all yeah. get together and do a live episode of the yeah. podcast. So, we're trying to get all our ducks in a row for that. I so met somebody on the train, actually, uh, coming back from Doncaster who uh, was coming to the live show. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, so, so that's happening. Yeah. And, but then we. But I think it's nearly selling out, so people better get on with it if they're yeah. going to come along. Fun frolics and... Uh, Something else beginning with F. Yeah. <laughs> Go on, you could do it. Fajitas. <laughs> <laughs> Love that's where your mind went. Um, but don't worry if it does sell out, which we're hoping yeah. it will, there's, there's going to be more. Sunday, July 28th at the Clapham Grand. Oh, that's quite exciting because we've not been there before. Yeah, the Grand also, it's like sounds grand. Yeah, Clapham. It? I never thought yeah. it would happen with me and yeah. a girl from Clapham. Exactly. So, so more Reasons to be Cheerful live shows coming up. So there'll, there'll be a, a link. More in September. Yeah, link in, in the description to this yeah. podcast if you want to get tickets. And a special one also, which we can't really talk about yet. No, which could... I'm putting my finger on my lip. Right. And then something as exciting as We're having a baby. Yeah, Ed and I have a little announcement to make. It's It's been a long pregnancy, I'd say, longer than nine months. Yes, yeah. Or has it been nine months? It's probably been more. We've we've been cooking this up for a while, and now we're we're fit to burst. We're ready to pop. Yes. Because our baby will be appearing in your feed over the next few days. Do you want to tell them what we <laughs> your baby will appearing in your feed? I mean, it's slightly sort of. I was stretching cannibalism. the metaphor a little bit. Aren't we? Sort of, yeah. I think it's kind of problematic cannibalism. Tell them what we've decided to call our baby. We've decided to call it Cheerful Book Club, um, and we. I think we previewed the fact that we were expecting um, at Christmas, but we like re- when people put the scan up on Facebook. We re- yeah, we really think that there there's so many great books that come out and this is going to be mainly non-fiction books with with great ideas and these books often seem to come and go and people deserve to hear interviews with the authors, maybe some chat about the book and we're going to be it's it's going to have its own feed this baby uh in a couple of months time. Yeah, it's going to wean. Yeah. So at the moment we're going to breastfeed yeah. it in our feed. You I just think no, you don't, you're not into no, this no, analogy. Like, yeah, you know. I think we should um, leave it in. Yeah, well okay. Uh and so you're going to hear see them there're about half a dozen that are going to be appearing in your feed over uh the coming weeks. The first one is an interview that I did with Elizabeth Day and it, her book is called How to Fail. It's based on her podcast How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. Uh, Jeff thought it was really appropriate that I did the interview, How to Fail, because I have sort of, you know, UK all-comers record expertise. At, <laughs> will you tell, at, the, will you tell the story? Oh, but I'll tell the story, yes. So so I was reading Elizabeth Day's book, and I was actually in a queue at a restaurant with my wife. I basically took the book along to finish it off, and uh, Elizabeth Day said 
why why is the jacket cover not on your book and i said well i didn't really want to be kind of in the queue with this book so <laughs> how to fail emblazoned on the front i thought it was too good a picture too to good take. a photo so opportunity like, for somebody know, a nearby person uh, with a camera phone exactly yeah. in all in all honesty but it's a really i, I think it's really good that she, you know we talk a lot about success winners all that we don't talk about failure how we learn lessons from failure what failure means what what failure is um uh, how people cope with failure and and so that's the conversation we're going to be releasing it it's going to it's going this to appear week. as if by magic and defeat this magic. week and then we've got some and great please let us know what you think about it yeah you know tweet us uh email us you know because we're we're this is a sort of pilot phase and we want you the listener to be involved in the pilot phase give us feedback as we um bring up our baby as it takes its little baby yeah steps. exactly and um, we want you to help nurture it exactly it takes a village yeah it takes a podcast community exactly to raise a new one yeah so very exciting live shows and the book club coming soon but on to the matter in hand what's uh, what's this week's episode about this land is your land i knew you were gonna this sing that. i knew this was coming land. i knew it was coming from the New York Islands to the something, something. Is that right? I, I it's, Whenever I think of that song, it's also yeah. used in an episode of The Simpsons where they sing this log is your log. So th- th- that's right. what's going through my mind at the moment. Anyway, we're talking but about It was land. a lovely rendition. Thank you. It wasn't really. But th- we're talking about land, how land is used in this country, who owns the land. It turns out to be really difficult to get at who owns the land. Uh, we've got a great conversation coming up with George Monbiot. He writes for The Guardian. And Beth Stratford, they worked together on a report that was produced this week called Land for the Many. And we want to talk about and, and kind of unearth some of the proposals uh, in, in the report. And then after that, we are joined by comedian Harriet Brain, who's going to be sharing some of her ideas, which maybe will be reasons to be cheerful if we accept them into the uh, constitution of the Jeffocracy. What's yours? My reason to be cheerful this week, I have been spreading the good word of our podcast on other podcasts. Mm, good. So I've been on three other podcasts this three? week. Three? Yep. Uh, I went Not on, your own? No, well, if you start including my own. Five? I guess, yeah. Um, I went on Griefcast, which is a fantastic... Harry Adloyd, last year's a British Podcast Award winner. And it's it's, it's fantastic podcast, and, and usually they're these sort of funny, lovely, warm, um, emotional conversations. Yeah. But because I'm sort of emotionally yeah. immature, Carrie had invited me onto the live show, so it's, it's perhaps... You're not emotionally immature at all. I, I, just... think, I don't think I'd do a good job of talking about grief and, and death and things particularly. Well, that doesn't mean you're immature. That means you've sort of got sort of issues. various issues like we all do okay okay i don't think you're emotionally you're, you're, very, you're emotionally very sensitive you're very actually. kind uh then then i went on um for the second time i went on the egg pod which is a beatles podcast in which i talk extensively about the second disc of the beatles anthology wow and then i went on a podcast called my mate bought a toaster What's that about? The hosts are Tom Price and Samantha Baines, and you turn up and you give them your password to your Amazon account, and then they go through your purchases. Oh, Jesus. It was oddly intrusive. Yeah. And there was just all this stuff that I have no memory of buying. In 2005, I did, in fact, buy a a toaster that was a muffin toaster that doubled up as an egg poacher. I don't, I don't uh, eat eggs. I don't know where that came from. I bought an egg poacher and it was just hopeless. There was, there was another. I bought a, a, a fad diet book called the Mucusless Diet Cleansing System oh in 2003. God. It was it was quite intrusive, but I think it's quite a good idea for a podcast. It is. So. It is. And talking of things that you bought or in this case didn't buy, so somebody messaged us on Facebook. Hello, Jeff. I've tried to search the pants you were referring to on the most recent podcast. I was just talking to my boyfriend. He was listing all of the problems. 
don't explain what they are, with his current brand. I told him if I ever found something from it, I would buy them. Sorry to bother you. And I know you aren't sponsored by the brand. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> but I would really appreciate the help in finding the brand so highly recommended. Jen Gremmer. This is the free pair of underpants that I got from my friend last week. And let me tell you, I wore them yesterday. And it really, I mean, it felt luxurious. There was zero chafing. I was in comfort. I felt like well, well ventilated. Okay, enough, <laughs> enough, enough. They're, uh, called, well, they're called comfy balls. Right, okay. Then Jen Gremmer will be pleased. What's my, your reason my to be re- cheerful? Okay, so my reason to be cheerful is about somebody that we've had on the podcast. It was a great guest, and that is Suze Kempner. And yeah, you and I have discussed this during the course of the week. Suze Kempner did this tweet uh, thread uh, last week. It like went massively viral, and it reminded you of the good things about Twitter. So basically, the, the tweet begins like this. The first tweet is this. 12 years ago, I was in Ionapa being a Christina Aguilera tribute act for a company that turned out to be a money laundering operation for the Cypriot Mafia. Anyway, one day I couldn't afford to eat and I just ate a full jar of Nutella I'd bought the week before. Anyway, then she goes on about the job and the travails of the people. And it's like this whole thread. And anyway, it's been favorited 20,000 times. And, you know, the thing that was really great was the sort of replies to it. I mean, you know, within a few hours, people were bidding to, like, have the rights to it, make it into a series. Uh, Hugh Bonneville, the actor... Uh, tweeted, when this goes to series, I'll play the fridge, the jar of Nutella, anything. I just want to be in it. Suze, Hugh, would you have any interest in playing Elvis? Hugh, when do I start? Uh, you know, honestly, it was just, it's like the, you know, Twitter is so often so awful. And this is like the democratizing nature of Twitter. You know, it's sort of, it just brings people together and it was great. Suze Kempner is the anti Donald Trump. She is the balm for our soul. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So I'm delighted to say that we're joined now by Georges Monbiot, Guardian columnist and editor of the Land for the Many report. And here in Jeff's house by Beth Stratford, who is PhD student and co-author of Land for the Many. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for uh, George, let me just start by uh, asking you, you wrote in a piece this week that land was the most neglected issue in British politics. Tell us sort of what you meant by that. What, why? Land literally and metaphorically underlies our lives. And the treatment of the land, the use, the ownership, the control of the land is absolutely crucial to our well-being. It determines whether or not we live in an egalitarian society, whether we live in a fair society, whether we live in a green society. And yet this absolutely critical issue, which sort of sits beneath everything else, just scarcely features in political debate at all. I mean, it comes up about every 50 to 70 years that there's some serious political discussion about it. The use of the land, the control of the land, determines whether houses are affordable, because about 70% of the price of a home um, is actually the land price. It's not the price of the bricks and mortar. It's the speculative price of land. It determines whether or not we have enough public space, what the quality of that public space is. It determines how we treat the living world um, across the entire terrestrial sphere. So, you know, these aren't trivial issues. These are fundamental issues, but they all come down to our determination of how the land is used. And unfortunately, when that issue is neglected, as it has been for so long, what happens is further and further drift into the hands of an oligarchy, a, a smaller and smaller number of people who come to control not only the ownership of the land, but the decisions surrounding that land use as well. And now, 
when people think about land ownership, say, you know, 50 or 100 years ago, they'd think of the sort of landed aristocracy. But lots of those issues persist today. George, talk to us about the state of land ownership today in Britain, how we compare with other countries and 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 kind of what, what, what the issues are? Well, work by Guy Shrubsall, who's one of the authors of our report and has recently brought out his book, Who Owns England, suggests that about 25,000 people own roughly ha- half the land surface of, of this country. Now, this is extraordinary. A tiny, tiny number of people. And because of that level of control, it means that almost the entire country can decide that we want to go in a particular direction. But that tiny handful, a tiny fraction of 1% can decide, no, you're not going in this direction because we own the land and we can decide what goes on here. And we don't really know who they are, do we? I mean, we, we, we do a bit, but we kind of, it's quite hard to get access to it. It's quite remarkable. We have a situation where we have a land registry, but a significant portion of the land in the UK is not actually registered. It's not available to view in that land registry. So we don't know who owns that. Why is that? Because um, these people are very powerful and they don't want the land registry to know. And so instead of government saying, right, you must register all land, come what may, only the land which passes through transactions, which is bought and sold in, uh, um, since a certain date, gets registered. Um, and what that means is that the old money remains invisible because it's the aristocrats, really, who don't sell their land. They don't need to sell their land. And so a lot of the land whose ownership we can't determine is probably in the hands of people who've had it for hundreds of years, very often since the Norman Conquest. Um, and these people remain tremendously powerful. You know, when when we talk about power in this country. We generally think about the press barons, we think about the bankers, we think about the big corporations, and of course they're all tremendously powerful. But we forget that the aristocracy, the old landed elite, also remains an incredibly powerful force in this country. We tend to think of them as a bit of a joke, just sort of tweedy blokes wandering about with double-barrel shotgun. George, is it the old aristocracy or is it newer members of the super-rich who are, who own the land? About a third of it seems to be in the hands of the aristocracy, which is extraordinary. Of course, there's a new breed of oligarchs who's moving in in a very yeah. big way, buying up both urban and rural land, often um, because of its remarkable tax advantages. This is another crazy thing that, you know, we tax wealth at a far lower rate than we tax income. So for doing absolutely nothing, you pay less tax than you do for working your butt off. So it's a tax shelter. Um, It turns out to be a, a very effective shelter for the proceeds of crime around the world. So a lot of criminals buy land in the UK in order to launder their money because there's so little scrutiny of that sector. Beth, talk to us about, because this is something the report focuses on, uh, land being used as a financial asset, which George has mentioned, and, and the the value of land, I think, has increased something like 500% in the last 25 years. And, and, and how that relates to the housing crisis. Yeah, so it's worth, it's worth separating out different types of land because it's, it's really residential land and agricultural land that's seen really dramatic increases in, in value. Like you say, for, so for residential land, it's about 544% um, in the last 20 years. So that's like trillions of 
Exactly, how? yeah. So the value of residential land has increased really because the value for housing has increased. And, and, the, and the scarce element in housing isn't the bricks and mortar or the construction workers. Um, well, actually, there is, a, there is a shortage of construction workers, but they're not getting paid five times as they yeah. were 20 years ago. The really scarce element is the land, the land with permission to build on it. And that much, I think, the, 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 the mainstream discussion has managed to grasp that it's um, demand exceeding supply, which sounds very textbook. But the problem with ending there is that a lot of people seem very confused about what demand is. People will tend to assume that demand is the same as housing need, like the number of people who need somewhere to live. But if, if prices were determined by the ratio up between numbers of people needing somewhere to live and numbers of dwelling then prices would have been going down for the last 20 years because the number of dwellings has actually increased faster than the number of people and the number of households. This really? Is, it's extraordinary. So is it, is it speculators? <laughs> so, so what the exactly? So the, what? The, thing that's, the thing that's missing from our understanding of demand is that it's, well, firstly, like you say, there's, it's people who want housing as a financial asset. So that's the result of very... Deliberate policy changes, some deliberate, some So we have enough housing. Sorry, I'm still registering your previous mm. thought. We have enough housing. Um, I, I don't want to, I'm yeah. not, I, I definitely don't want yeah. to give the impression that we don't need to build more yeah. housing, particularly in certain areas and of certain sure. types, particularly social housing, sure. we desperately do need to build. The point is building those houses is not going to bring down house prices in the way that most public discussion seems to assume that it will. So what, this second homes, multiple homes, all of that, this is what's good, homes that aren't for the right prices... That's what's going on. That's what's going on. So what you find increasingly is that ordinary people, when they go to bid for a house, they're bidding against buy-to-let landlords, uh, international and domestic elites after second homes, which may well end up empty. And as, as George points out, because of the opacity around information of who owns land, increasingly money launderers uh, and people trying to evade, evade so tax. It, so, so there's this statistic that one in 10 people own a second property in this country, which is mind-blowing. It's become the most effective store of value. You know, if you're worried about um, equities, if you're worried about guilts, if you're worried about any other way of investing in money, the obvious place to put it into is into housing. And, um, and there's this extraordinary divide opening up where a small proportion of the population has got two houses, three houses, four houses, and huge numbers of people have not got a decent home to live in. And this becomes particularly felt in the most desirable rural locations, small seaside towns, for example, and villages. This is often the bit forgotten about second homes. It's business people with their pied-à-terre, their, 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 their flats, which they um, might stay in um, for part of the week while they're working. And then they go home to their real house um, in, in the countryside for the rest of the week. And often causing massive housing deprivation in inner cities. And, and it, it's the forgotten element of the second homes issue. The second element in demand that's quite often overlooked is purchasing power. So a desire to have a home, to own a home, only becomes demand if you've got the money to back it up. So you can imagine in this bidding war, if people were all relying on their existing savings, then the bidding war would go so far, but there would be a limit, which is how much money people have in their bank account. But of course, most people, when they buy a house, they use credit from the bank, they use mortgages. So what follows from that is if you have a seismic deregulation of the mortgage, 
mortgage market so that banks become much more able and willing to create money, and it is the creation of money, and push that into the housing market, then you basically lift the lid on uh, purchasing power, the limits to purchasing power. I think it's really worth sort of emphasising this because when people think about the housing crisis, they either think we're not building enough houses and you're and you're saying we Beth we're not building enough social housing or they also think we're sort of full up we you know all the 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 land's being used there's just not enough space etc but that is not correct we need to have a clear diagnosis of the problem because otherwise we give a free hand to the people who go around saying we need to end immigration and that will solve the housing crisis which is nonsense but there is spaces there without i mean you know people think we're a crowded island i'm just, i'm just using the phrases that people use we're a crowded island you know green space is being dwindling away but you you're saying there is the space if 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 land was more democratically owned yeah i think we are it's really poorly allocated i mean i think, yeah. think that's that's the answer and you know because we don't have pro-social housing policies, you know, policies which are actually there to meet need rather than to meet this aggregated demand that Beth is talking about. We have this massive misallocation of land for housing and local authorities are told, well, you know, national need, uh, national demand is, is such and such, so you must build such and such an amount of houses. And, and you know, that what we're not hearing is, wait a minute, what is the difference between demand and need? So, um, for instance, there was a massive issue, and this is north of the border, this is in, in Scotland, but in the Cairngorms National Park, huge controversy over a housing development um, being built inside the boundaries of the National Park. And local people were saying, well, you know, we need housing. And they do, they need housing in the National Park. It turned out that every single one of those homes, houses was a second home. And so they were forced to build. The local authority was forced to give permission for those houses to be built, but it wasn't meeting needs at all. It was meeting demand, but it wasn't meeting need. So, Beth, can you briefly talk us through your proposals to to, to discourage land being used as a financial asset that both yeah. you and George have talked about? Yeah, absolutely. So, one of the key things is is changing, overhauling our tax system. So, um, one of the things that we've seen is a is a determined shift in taxes away from land and on to labour and earnings. Um, and we need to reverse that, really. So the sorts of tax changes we propose is replacing council tax, which, as everybody knows, is deeply, deeply regressive. It's worse than the poll tax in many ways, um, with a progressive property tax, which would be actually proportional to the value of the property, with higher rates for second homeowners and non-DOMs as well. We propose, for example, changes to the inheritance tax, so shifting to a lifetime gift tax. At the moment, because of recent changes to inheritance tax, a couple could, if they wanted to pass their wealth untaxed onto their, the next generation, they need to they just get together a million pounds and put it in housing and, and let their kids inherit that, and it's completely tax-free. So we need to do something about that. We propose a, a tax on the purchase of land and housing by offshore corporations. Which happens a lot. Exactly. Yeah. 
Another thing is that we've, because we've got such weak tenants' rights, we've made it extremely attractive to, to, to enter landlordism. And so one of the most obvious and popular things that we can do is to increase the security, security of tenure for tenants, perhaps introduce a, a property MOT to ensure that properties are decent and checked and a register of landlords, rent caps, things like that. Those are things we need to do for their own sake, because uh, rent hikes and, and insecurity is, you know, ruining the life chances of many people, but they have the added benefit of dampening demand from buy-to-let landlords. George, what would you like to add about what's key to changing the dynamics on this? Well, we also need a, a far more proactive planning and development system. At the moment, it's being left to a few very big building companies to mobilise their land banks as and when they wish. And as a result, we don't have any strategic answers to the housing crisis. Um, it's very much at the beck and call of those big building companies. So one of the things we're calling for is to set up new public development corporations which can assemble land, which can take proactive decisions, which can decide what land is most needed for, um, particularly, obviously, for affordable housing, and in conjunction with the local authorities, just be far more progressive and, and on the front foot than they currently are. But alongside that, we want to see a democratisation of planning so that we have more active involvement from local people, who don't make all the decisions, because obviously that there sometimes need to be big strategic decisions made, but there should be a much wider public engagement and involvement. So we want to set up a public engagement agency to actually get people much more involved in planning decisions than they are at the moment, and jury service for planning. Because the problem is that even when local people are involved, it tends to be a particular faction of local people confident people, people who feel a sense that they're entitled to be involved. Of course, we all should feel that sense. But on the whole, it tends to be people of a certain class and a, and a certain mindset who feel that sense of entitlement, while other people do not. By introducing jury service, it means we um, get a far wider cross-section of the public than normally put themselves forward. And so we, we're just trying to make the use of land far more strategic and democratic than it is at the moment and make sure it's allocated properly. Very often the land banks that developers have accumulated are simply in the wrong places for meeting our needs. They have such power within that system. They can basically strong arm local authorities into making sure that they get permission to build homes, which are very often not the homes which are actually locally required. Just as a practical example, how would your, the situation you described in the Cairngorms National Park before, how would it have played out differently under your proposals? So when you're talking about need rather than about demand, and local authorities, instead of being instructed from on high, you've got to provide X number of homes willy-nilly, it's you know, much more sensible to say we've got to determine the specific demands for our locale, what is missing, very often what's missing is affordable homes, uh, genuinely affordable homes, could be social housing. Often we're missing um, homes for people with special needs. You know, that's often a huge deficit in, in a lot of places and, and people are inappropriately housed as a result. And so, yeah, you will have to build some homes because, you know, as Beth says, we, you know, we're not suggesting there should be no more building. There, there needs to be building, but it needs to be done far more intelligently and strategically than it is at the moment. 
just talk about this public agency, George. Is this about the public sector uh, taking ownership of the land uh, and then building on it? Uh, well, there's two separate things here. We're talking about these development corporations, public development corporations that would assemble land specifically for not just for housing, but also for public spaces, for other public amenities. Which they would buy, would they? Would they they'd buy that from developers or they'd have public use public land? Yes, they would. They would. And what, what we would like to see them being able to do is to buy it at pre-development prices. So to buy it for little more than the land cost before it receives planning permission. And if necessary, to um, have the threat of compulsory purchase in the background, um, which will then start mobilising this land and getting it onto the market. And one of the reasons why housing is so expensive is that in 1961, the relevant act was amended to ensure that the for any public housing that took place, the landowner was compensated um, uh, for for that land according to its value after receiving planning permission, which in some cases can be 250 times what it would have cost as agricultural land. Now, that enormous jackpot for the landowner is felt by us in enormous rents and mortgages because the land becomes exceedingly expensive and therefore the housing becomes exceedingly expensive. One estimate suggests that if landowners could no longer capture that incredible uplift from um, that, uh, in the value that planning permission gives them, houses in the southeast, affordable homes in the southeast, would be 50% cheaper than they currently are. Wow. So, you know, we're paying through the nose so that a tiny number of people, this tiny number of people who own most of the land in the UK, can make phenomenal profits through no work of their own at all. This this value is entirely socially generated. You know, a, a local authority will grant planning permission for some land and suddenly it's worth 100 or 200 or 250 times as much as it was before. And the landowner can pocket the majority of that money. Is there anywhere in the world that we can look to which which does this better than us? Probably lots of places. There is somewhere in the world yeah. and it's called Scotland. Right, go on. And, and Scotland actually has a, a lot of the progressive policies that we want to see applied in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. In particular, it has a community right to buy, which has been used to great effect by people to buy land originally in rural areas, um, now increasingly in urban areas as well. How does that work, George? When land comes up for sale, a local community has first refusal. Am I right in thinking, Beth, that on vacant and derelict land now, there can be a bit of leverage applied to actually get it onto the market and into the hands of local communities if yeah, that's desired? Exactly. Yeah. So there's a compulsory sale order where, whereby if land is derelict and vacant for a certain defined period of time, um, a forced sale can, can take place and with communities given the first right to bid. And that's certainly what we propose following that model in England and Wales. And what else is good in Scotland, George? Scotland also has a land commission, which um, is constantly exploring issues of, uh, of the kind that we're discussing and determining um, what more needs to be done, um, what policies should be changed. And it has a general right to roam. So you're allowed to walk anywhere on un- uncultivated land in Scotland, apart from people's gardens. Um, and so there's a real sense of freedom there. Don't we have that in England and Wales? 
No, only 10% of the land in England and Wales has, has a right to roam over it. Um, and as a result, you know, we end up feeling like trespassers in our own nation. You know, we're sort of literally trespassers if we venture to walk on most of the land in the UK. And we're metaphorically trespassers because it, even discussing these things we're talking about can feel like a trespass. You know, oh, it's not our land. Perhaps we should just leave it to the landowners. And there's a real sort of cultural cringe around this issue of land, which is one of the reasons why it's so little discussed and why so little is done, because there's a sort of residual feudal deference where we say, well, you know, it was your land, so you you can decide. And actually, you know, it's our land. Um, this is a non-reproducible asset on which everything else depends. It is the very fabric of our nation and its use should be determined democratically. We have a thing on the podcast which is a utopian future. I am a, talking of feudal deference. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I thought George set you up with feudal do, deference so well. Yeah, but as the supreme leader, yeah, feudal deference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there will there will be a lot of deference on my part. I will turn over the Ministry of Land Reform to Beth and George. What is what is the first thing you do on day one? George is going to try and abolish the Jeffocracy, knowing George as I do. He's not going to. He's going to be out on the streets against you the Jeffocracy. You keep trying to encourage coups. No, I think George is definitely a man who's going to try and launch a coup against you, Beth. Uh, okay, so let's just go along with this for this. Yeah. Thing. Uh, I think. I think the first step I, I would take is to fast track the reforms so that communities know who owns and controls and has an interest in land. Um, as George said, you know the, the land registry. A, it doesn't have all the data yet, but B, you've got to pay £3 a pop uh, for every title that you want to find out. So, so it's 72 take... million quid exactly. to, to, to open it up. Exactly. Yeah. And so that data has to be treated as a public good. It has to not be monetised. We ought to bring the Ordnance Survey and Land Registry into, into government and make all that uh, available, downloadable, basically, for free by the public. How would that make a difference if people knew, do you think? Do you think it'd be more of a public sense of scandal or...? Absolutely, yeah. At the moment, there's this this terrifying fire sale going on of public land. It's worth looking at the campaign that the New Economics Foundation is running at the moment. So we need to know if our land is being flogged off. Um, at the moment, it's one of the key disadvantages that new entrants and small builders have in the housing market is that they just don't know who owns what land, who right. to approach, who's got right. options. And that opacity makes it very right. difficult. Only the big landowners can, can compete in that. Um, and of course, you know, we don't know who's getting these subsidies. These, uh, like you say, the, the public outrage that would come um, once it became clear who's managing to dodge their inheritance tax, who's managing to make, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds every year simply by sitting on land that they own. I think that would uh, very much galvanise the land reform movement. George, if you're not out on the streets protesting, what are you going to be doing? I think actually, you know, Beth's been very modest about this because, you know, it was her original proposal, but her plan for a common ground trust, I would put as one of our top demands because I think it's a really brilliant idea. And, and what it is, is a public body uh, which does two things, really. It, it helps to stabilise land prices and prevent this crazy fluctuation in housing and you know, which can often cause economic crises, while at the same time gradually shifting a large amount of land 
into the commons, into the common domain, where there's public control and public engagement in the, the use and the ownership of that land. And um, I, I'll summarise it briefly, and Beth can tell me where I've gone wrong. Um, it's a good exercise to know if I've got this right. <laughs> if somebody wants to buy a house, but they can't afford the, the full price of that, they can apply to the Common Ground Trust and say, could you buy the land and we'll buy the bricks and the mortar? Um, and so you make you make it easier for people to buy the home. They then pay a, a land rent to the Common Ground Trust for, for a certain amount of time, 25 years or, or, or more. But it's overall can be cheaper for them, certainly, certainly initially, to buy the home. It's their house, but the land remains with the Common Ground Trust. And gradually, the Common Ground Trust can build up a bank of land which it can then start to think about using strategically in the long run. It can use land rents to help subsidise people who run into trouble, to lower rents for, for retired people. And it starts to take a sort of far more active and strategic approach to the whole issue of land. Yeah, and the kind of reason for developing the idea of the Common Ground Trust in the first place was a realisation that because our house prices have been debt fueled and speculation fueled, they're extremely vulnerable to reversal. If we really want to end exploitation for renters, put in rent caps, for example, and, and have a progressive and fair tax system, there is a danger that the demand from investors and speculators and landlords will suddenly withdraw from the market. And some people might start to put their homes up for sale. And if there's nothing to kind of plug that gap, we could see prices faltering. And then, of course, you get the situation where banks, once house prices are falling, banks become much more cautious about lending at high loan to income ratios and high loan to value ratios. And that then sucks purchasing power out of the out of the uh, housing market so you can get a spiral down which is much faster than we want and i you know house prices rising is very problematic that doesn't mean house prices falling is 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 fine sure. um, the danger of course is so what would you do about how would your common ground trust so, help so the common ground trust um it's essentially a lever for the government to introduce socially beneficial and stable and sustainable forms of demand whilst they're discouraging the sort of volatile... How do they do that? Well, precisely because there's a whole, you know, people like me or housing co-ops or families um, who want to buy a house and currently can't afford to can ask the Common Ground Trust to purchase the land underneath the house. So with a much smaller deposit, because bricks and mortar on average account for only 30% of the value of the house, many more people with small deposits would be able to buy a house. Do you see what I mean? And so if prices are, are, are falling f much faster than we want them to, the Common Ground Trust can build slightly above the market value for the land and help to help to stabilise prices. Do you see what I mean? Because it's so much about expectation in, in, the, in the housing market. And if the government says very clearly, we're going to stabilise land prices and we're going to use these tools at our disposal to do that, then that will really help. So, so the the report that you've published suggests huge changes to national policies. And what what would be the first step? And and how can people get behind this? Because often with the podcast, listeners want to get involved and do something. They hear an idea that they get inspired by. Apart but, from making the Jeffocracy happen, what else? Well, can that, they that do? would be my my main yeah, suggestion. Yeah. But what else? Yeah, that's a it's a really good question. And uh, so people who care about access to land. Um, uh, for recreation might start we, maybe we need another mass trespass to get a right to roam for example people who care about um, the ecological management of
of land and are, and are upset about these grouse moors where massive fires uh, happen and they destroy the root system, which leads to flooding. Um, you know, there, there was a camp recently near Hebden Bridge where they actually occupied some land and made the point that this is this is not in the interest of the local community. Um, if you're a tenant, um, join a renters' union. I, I, I who have, have actually produced big changes at the renters' union in relation to is it section 21 which allowed people to be evicted from homes and so on and the government is now changing the policy exactly we just didn't imagine that that was feasible when you know three or four years ago so so things are changing and and the momentum is on our side but we just have to keep up the pressure and keep keep politicians feet to the fire on this george monbiot and breath stratford thanks so much for joining us thank you for having us thanks very much Ed. really great to talk to you both so what did you think well firstly i think you you once again have been trying to stir up dissent against the Jeffocracy. Guilty Let me tell as you, on, on, the, on the issue of being one of the landed gentry, I wouldn't even want to live in something like Buckingham Palace. Just like a nice house like they have on Grand Designs would be fine for me. Good it would be Well, that speaks very well for you. Thank you. Thank you. You're so, a man of the people. So stop trying to stir yeah. up revolution then, yeah, please. Okay, sorry. Um but I mean this is before the, the before the you've even got into power. Exactly. There was a lot to be surprised by. And I don't know if we, we um talked about this number during the interview, but um so thirty percent of land is owned by the aristocracy and gentry, eighteen percent by corporations. 8.5 by the public centre, and just 5% by homeowners. That is extraordinary. Just 5% of land. So who owns the rest? Well, I mean, you'd need to pay the land registry um, £3 to find out, and maybe if it's, been, uh, if, it, if it's been in the family long enough, you just can't find out. And this comes from this book, which I've actually just started, called Who Owns England by Guy Shrubsall, um, which is a really interesting um, book. And half of land in England is owned by less than 1%. Uh, of the population. So, I mean, I th- I, the things I thought were, we should definitely be able to find out who owns the land. Yeah. And I mean, it should just be published. Like and, sort of company's house, but for, for land registry. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just absolutely ridiculous that this isn't transparent. I was really struck by learning about this thing about how much you, you, you think of the fact that we've just got far too few houses. And I think we do have far too little social housing but the 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 figures beth was giving on you know sort of demand and need it was so surprising yeah really something's yeah. like really surprising um there's just, i mean a lot of it is quite technical there is this issue which george touched on which i think is important and the the select committee the communities and local government select committee recently uh talked about this in one of their reports which is this land compensation act 1961 which basically means the right of landowners to, and I'm quoting from the report here, to receive hope value, a value reflective of speculative future planning permissions. So, and they say it serves to distort land prices, encourage land speculation and reduce revenues for affordable housing, infrastructure and local services. And basically, this means that when local authorities want to compulsorily purchase land, they've got to do so as if it's already got planning permission to build on. Right. And and. I think that is one of the things that needs to be brought. I mean, it's clearly a whole suite of recommendations in it. But I ended up concluding, you know, I think we talk about the things that are simple enough to talk about. So we talk about house prices. We talk about income inequality. George is right. We don't talk enough about land because it's quite complex. But we need to talk about it. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. If you've got thoughts on what you heard about land and uh, what we should do about it and how we make it fairer, please do email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us 
on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast, also on Instagram or on Facebook.com forward slash Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. This came from Maz O'Connor. It was commenting on last week's show about care for the elderly. Dear Jeff and Ed, I really enjoy your recent episode. I want to add another suggestion for how we can make ageing not only more comfortable but more enjoyable, and that's bringing music into every care home in the country. I'm a 28-year-old magician. Magician. I'm a 28-year-old musician, even, and I've been working in care homes for a few years now through a brilliant charity called Live Music Now. I've been into a lot of care homes and always struck by how different each one is. It seems like such a lottery. There are a lot of amazing staff, but they are overworked and underpaid and often understandably tired. Nonetheless, all care homes could benefit from a culture of singing together. Music brings joy, fun, connection, fond reminiscences, and emotional release to the staff and the residents. I'm, I'm totally sure that is uh, true. I love the opportunity Maz goes on to spend time with older people, and I think other people of my age and all generations would love it too. Music reaches across generations and help us to meet each other as complex humans, each with a unique personality. Maybe you can give a shout-out to live music now. I think we just have. And maybe we can join and go and sing some songs. I think that might not be what the elderly residents <laughs> want, I think, at least as far as my singing is concerned. Uh, this comes from Becca Boot, uh, also on the subject of last week's episode. And Becca says, I'm quite frustrated that the episode was so narrowly focused on social care for older people when actually the social care system is used by people of all ages. I'm 25 and have had social care package since I was 20, which has allowed me to go to uni and live independently. Social care for working age and younger people has the same issues as for older people but the way the system operates poses particular additional problems when you're younger number one there's no continuity across different local authorities Uh, if you want to move you have no certainty that your care will continue if you move to a different council area number two cuts to social care mean that it's very difficult to plan for the future at any time my local authority can decide to review my care package and really constrain my ability to study work or engage in the community which is a precarious way to live and number three the way the social care is means tested makes it very difficult to save for a mortgage deposit as savings are taken into account. This locks disabled people into the rental sector where it's also harder to make any uh, adaptions to properties that might be needed. There are many more issues besides this but I'd be interested in hearing solutions for social care that discuss the whole system. Well as ever with these things you know we we tend to look at one aspect. aspect, I think it's a fair point and I think it's definitely right to read that uh, this comes from Mariaka uh, Wegner, or Wegener. Um, I should say, Mariaka, that I just tried to look up how to pronounce your name, but uh, this Google thing thought I would. I said, "How do you pronounce Mariaka?" And it said, "How do you pronounce America?" So, uh, <laughs> maybe America, America. Being, uh, being an anagram of Mariaka. Anyway, Mariaka Wegner, uh, and forgive me if I've murdered the pronunciation. Hello, Jeff and Ed. It's a great email. Thank you for the that's not what she says. That's what I'm saying. Thank you for the wonderful <laughs> podcast. Uh, many subjects really resonate, but none as much as episode 84 on your bike. Having listened to it, a colleague and I were so motivated that we started a bike to work group at Sainsbury's in Kendall, Cumbria. Isn't this brilliant? Wow. Quite a few of our friends and colleagues regularly cycle to work, and we are now looking forward to our first get together this Friday. This is all thanks to your positive reporting and discussion on using a bike as everyday transport. Well done and keep motivated. Fantastic. I mean, you know, we We have to get on that tandem, don't we? Park run on your bike. I mean, you know, maybe we're like the sort of Jane Fonders of the kind of 2010s. (laughs) Or we're in 2010s, 2019. 
Do you think we should do an exercise video? Yeah, I, I could be like Mr. Motivator. You could be the green goddess. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. And here with some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian Harriet Brain. Hello. Hello. Um, I good name. It is a good oh, name. thank you. It is. But uh, Brain with an E at the end. Yeah, I got it off my dad. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I think, Belgian via Scotland. Wow. Have you been able to um, mould it into a pun for an Edinburgh show title? No. <laughs> I think we should think of one now. <laughs> we should. We should. Come on. Well, I mean, let's, so let's think of a, a phrase that already has brain in it. This is the way these things usually go, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, hair brain. Well, there we go. There's, there's, <laughs> there's no, it. I, think we should... I can see the poster. Know, it's you, you've got what... some wild... I mean, I think we're there already. I, so. I could do like a parody of the musical Hair. Yes. And then... Brain. Th- that'll be it. I yeah. thought it was going to be like word, this brain, we word association. You, you were so good out of the block, Ed. We didn't need I to do word so association. <laughs> yeah. Brains, trains and automobiles. Well, there we go. Oh, again. <laughs> brain gain, brain yeah. drain. Yeah. <laughs> brain train, yeah. You've, you've found your calling. It's naming Edinburgh shows for Harriet. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, we can work well together, I think. Mm. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and also you could have the E at the end of each, you see. Brain with an E. Ed, we've, we've got to stop this. No, Brain with an e. Here's what she's doing, humouring you is what she's doing. Right, okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. Is that what it was? Yeah. Right, uh, Harry, you brought along some ideas. What's the first one? We should evolve in such a way that we don't develop any biological sex characteristics until after puberty. Because I think a lot of the world's problems could be solved if... Boys weren't treated like boys and girls weren't treated like girls. Oh, I think you're right. I think you're right. And, and it's uh, it's so, even if you try to be a parent mm. who doesn't do that, yeah. I mean, you, you're doing it anyway. You're carrying exactly. centuries worth and, of and weight. And even if parents are trying their best, the whole world isn't trying their best, you know, are they, around the child? Mm. So I thought, you know, just take the whole problem away and just be like Kendall's until, yeah. So completely 18. smooth down there <laughs> yeah, until 18. Exactly. Yeah. If we didn't have any voice dropping, if we didn't have any, like, literally Then you wouldn't any... treat people differently. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It's, all, it's, all about having, it's all about having an equal start in life. I think that would be a key way of making sure that happens. Yeah. It's a bit of a snip-snip on the DNA. Were you were you very smooth down there until the age of eighteen? <laughs> yes. Were you very sort of <laughs> How exciting would that be as well at eighteen? Like, what am I gonna be? <laughs> were you very sort of boyish? Do I do I strike you as somebody who would have been particularly boyish? Not particularly. No, uh, I can't imagine you you were either no. really, were you? How about you, Harriet? Um, I was quite boyish, yes. Mind you, mind you, here's a confession. Mm. My first ever memory is I don't think I've ever said this before, is of losing my toy gun when we moved from London to Leeds at the age of three and a half. And and I remember looking in this very large delivery lorry, Pickford's, I think it was nationalised at that point, <laughs> uh, or the equivalent. And it's like, I just remember this huge lorry and looking in the huge lorry and it being completely empty and my gun not being there. And how did that make you feel? Really upset. And when you think about equivalent, that equivalent And feeling. I haven't had a toy gun ever since. <laughs> I think it was probably a conspiracy by my parents. I've never asked my mum oh, about maybe. this. To sort of just kind of say, oh, we got lost. Right. I think it used to make a <laughs> noise. And do you feel anger towards your parents when you think about this? Well, I hadn't thought about it actually until now for a long time. So this has never, co- never, never come up. Exclusive. I think you remember these things for a reason. Well, I have remembered it before, but I've never sort of thought whether I'm angry with my parents because I've always thought 
I was angry with Pickfords. <laughs> but now it's a conspiracy. I've always had to see against removal <laughs> companies. That's why you're so big on renationalising them in 2015. Exactly, exactly. You wanted to wreak revenge removal, on them. Exactly. Yeah. So there's removal companies. Wow. Sorry, thank you for bringing oh, out no this. Problem. Thank you for this sort of therapy moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I'm here See, for. we all have it in a sort of hidden way. What do you have next, Harriet? I'm pretty sure that London is giving me asthma. So sort it out, Ed. Um, it, yep. would, it would be great if yep. the whole like pollution thing could be I totally sorted. agree. Because I, I cycle quite a lot and I have, I've gone to the... I've, I've gone to the limit, you know, the, the silly limit where I've bought one of those face masks things that makes everyone look like Bane. Have um, you? Yes, and I think it works. I definitely feel better after a cycle than I used to. Uh, we, we did an episode on it, didn't we? I, you know, on the face masks or on cycling? On, on, <laughs> on the air. On the air. Yeah. Because I, I listen mean, to the cycling. You know, I'm very, I'm very worried about air pollution. I haven't quite made the leap on the old face mask it would be a good look for you yeah i mean it would stop people bothering you for selfie for selfies all the time people are like well maybe that's ed Miliband. <laughs> that's true actually. yeah you wouldn't like that though would you you enjoy oh. your selfies yeah i enjoy my selfies and also i think to, uh, we've got to sort out air pollution yes. yes okay what else have you got harriet i want to ban golf oh <laughs> controversial mm. yeah um why is this well, there are several reasons. I think it's a silly sport um, because I tried to do it once and failed miserably. Um, secondly... Tell us about your tantrum. My tantrum, Harriet, As you yeah, described was... it, just for the listeners in case so... they thought I was making a sexist remark, it was Harriet described it to me as a tantrum. I did. I was playing on the pitch and putt. So it wasn't even proper golf. Right. It, was a, it was small golf, yeah. I think is the technical term. And I was just very, very... I was playing very poorly and I was playing with my boyfriend who's also not, you know, he's not really played before. But I ended up uh, throwing um, my club, oh, really? uh, which is very dangerous. But like it wasn't very busy at the time because um, it was golf. Um, but it, I, I ended up throwing my, yeah, throwing my club and yeah, I could have hit someone with it. And I, and I threw it and it made a little dent in the grass. Do you generally throw things? Not really. I should introduce you to Gordon Brown. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't really mean that. Uh, are, you, are you a golf fan? You know, I have only played like two or three times or maybe four or five times in my life, so I'm not a fan. But kind of counter maybe to sort of culturally, because I don't, I don't sort of, you know, I think golf's got a Im- bit of an image issue. And it's mm. quite, I quite, I thought it was quite fun. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, think, I, I quite like the fresh air. I wonder how much golf Wind has that hair. image in this country compared to other countries as well. Maybe that's true. I mean, we were saying earlier that you know Obama played it. He's not just Trump, <laughs> which makes it all better. Yeah. But anyway, um, you would like to ban still, golf after yeah. your bad experience. Well, bad you... experience, and also um, uh, I had family members who are annoyingly good at it, so that's it's kind right. of like a jealousy thing. But also, um, it's a it's a bit of a it's one of those old boys club things right. that I just wish would just. We could democratize change or it. disappear. We yeah. could do change. We could we could change. We could change yeah. it. Nationalize golf. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good one. What, what a placard! That really yeah. Is. Now, Harriet, I'm sorry, but I'm still bursting with oh, this. No, oh no. <laughs> right, one. I've found a sort of set of brain phrases Excellent. to try out on you. Brain bucket, brain candy. What's brain bucket? I don't know. What's brain, brain candy? Brain dead. What, okay. Brain drain. We've had that. Brain, brain dump. Good. Brain fade. Mm-hmm. Brain fart. Not so much. Yes. Uh, oh. Brain picker. Brain teaser, brain wave. I thought no brainer. 
What do you think? No, no brainer. brainer. Well, the spelling would be an issue. It wouldn't be an obvious pun there, no. would it? Because you have to have an E in there. Uh, brainwave. I can see the poster for that one enough. in my mind's brainwave. eye. Brainwave. Yeah, I love it. Brain teaser, I quite like. That Brain too. teaser? I think that could be quite a good show. I think we started well. I think, you You've know. You've started well and faded. It's, yeah. like, it's like quavers all over again, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Although I must say, your focus is admirable. I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, you once, really brainstormed once, this. Uh, brainstormed! <laughs> Wait, we already had that one, didn't we? Yeah. I'm not yeah, sure we I did. Like, did I like we? brainstorm. Yeah. That's going to Hang on, brainstorm. His ability to get distracted by one thing. So you you call it focus, but it's just a very, very targeted Specific form of distraction. Right. Yeah. I, I'm I not also, sure about banning golf, but I like all your ideas. But it's all worth it because I wrote a pun for the not liking golf. I wrote, I don't like golf. No more golf. Ban golf. Vincent ban golf. Vincent ban golf. Because <laughs> uh, for those who know me, I do a lot of art puns. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Harriet, where can people come to see you? I am doing previews of my new show, Les Admirables, which I've already mentioned. Um, previews at the Museum of Comedy um, on the 19th and 23rd of June. Look on their website for more details. And then the Edinburgh Fringe itself from the 31st of July to well, forever, it seems. Harriet Brain, thank you so much. Thank you for Brain on me. the plane. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, I'm off to Wales. What are you doing in Wales, Ed? Well, I'm speaking to the uh, Torvine Labour Party constituency annual dinner. And I am, I think I'm staying overnight in Cumbran. Do you remember Cumbran from We Are The Champions? Of course, yes. Do you remember We Are The Champions? We Are The Champions. Away you go. Do you remember you say away you go <laughs> at the good, end yeah. and then all the kids would jump in the water? Yeah. And then I'm doing the Pontypool Park Run. Oh, so I know for, uh, something I know is that you had your personal best at. Park I did, but I'm, but I'm but I'm going to be in Pontypool doing the park run. Are you worried that maybe the the different the different course? I don't know. I you won't have the home I advantage. I haven't looked at the topography. <laughs> uh, You've not um, got your ordnance survey map out. I mean, I've obviously got advanced people doing the sort of you know measuring the hills. You and, send you somebody know, out on a record. Finding out if it's at altitude, yes. you know, like sort of you know whether whether the records will apply and uh, and all of that. Well, good luck. Let's yeah. know how what you get. You're going to be doing. Sitting I, on your couch. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sensible, sensible. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm doing five k to couch. Yeah, I'm doing it the other way around. Five meters to, to the couch. Yes. I'd like to thank George Mombio and Beth Stratford, and thanks to Harriet Brain for sharing her ideas. Emma Corsham produced our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the idents, and our artwork was done by Emily Powell. He's been the Green Goddess. He's been Mr. Motivator. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful.